Hello and welcome to The Student Space, a podcast for students about high school, life after school, and how to actually be an adult. Before we jump into the chat, I want to respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which I'm recording this podcast and pay my respects to the elders past and present of the Rwandri people of the Kulon Nations. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Student Space. Today we're chatting to Alice all about how she became a dietitian. So she completed an undergrad degree and a postgrad. Alrighty, so welcome Alice to an episode of The Student Space. I'm so excited to have you here today. Thanks, thanks. Now, I ask everyone this, just three random questions. You can think of it as like a little icebreaker. Mm -hmm. So tell me, are you an early riser or do you stay up quite late? I'm definitely, definitely, definitely a night owl. 100%. 100% night owl. So you prefer a good sleep in? Yep. Oh, interesting. And do you prefer listening to music or podcasts? Um, I'm a bit of both. So I do a lot of driving. Um, so I listen to podcasts in the car, but music around the house. So Ooh, both. lovely. Um, what podcast are you listening to recently? Uh, my favorite is it's called This Podcast Will Kill You. And they do a different episode every fortnight on a disease or um, something. So they've done them on like cholera. They did one on cholera. Right, yeah. um, and it's two, two women called Erin. <laughs> Um, and they just go through the like epidemiology of the disease and that disease through history. And then like at the end, they do a little bit that's like, how concerned should we be about this as a disease today? Um, and they do a quarantini every episode, like a themed alcoholic or non-alcoholic beverage. It's cute. That's really cool. Yeah. I'll link that in really the show notes if anyone wants to find it. Definitely worth it. And um, do you consider yourself a spender or a saver? Unfortunately, <laughs> I'm a spender. What are we spending our money on? Um, food. Yep. Lots of food, given my career choice. And clothes, shoes. Ugh. Yeah, it's it's hard. <laughs> yeah. yeah. My weakness. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, tell me about your high school experience. So what subjects did you do in VCE? How did you pick them? Yep. So I... Um, I didn't really figure out what I wanted to do until the end of year 11. Um, but through through all of high school, I was always very much more um, health health sciences, humanities, you know, people-based. Um, I have a twin brother and he is the opposite. He is math science. And so I was like, English. So in year 11, I did unit three, four psychology. Yep. And then in year 12, I did chemistry business management, literature, general maths, and... Did you do a language? No, I didn't do a language. Like P... Business, business management, health and human development. Oh, yeah. Health and human development. Nice. Yeah. Still a broad range. You've got a bit of everything. Bit of everything, yeah. The real kicker was um, I picked up chemistry in year 12. Stop it. Yeah. How did you cope? Oh. <laughs> um, it's a triggering point. Yeah, it Relive is triggering. Li- reliving this. <laughs> My main piece of advice is don't pick up chemistry in year 12. Um, no, it's because I decided that dietetics and nutrition was something that I wanted to pursue. Yep. And it was a prerequisite. Oh, um, gotcha. So I picked it up. I was lucky that I had a lot of support from teachers in that area um, who basically... I sat down and had a conversation with them and was like, I'm really passionate about this. This is what I want to do. And they were like, all right, we can make it work. We'll figure it out. Um, and I got a tutor and scraped through and passed that's and got a, into my course. That's so. the main thing. And this is a perfect segue <laughs> to my next question, which is, what did you want to do after high school? So you mentioned dietetics. Um, how did you make this choice? So I didn't, um, I didn't know that that was what I wanted to do until the end of year 11. Um, But all through high school, I kind of knew that I wanted to do something people-focused. I was always quite interested in health and science and that side of things. So in year 11 and year 10, I was kind of playing with like psychology. I thought about just doing a general health sciences degree and just doing what I think everyone does and being like, oh, it's fine. I'll figure it out later. Absolutely. (laughs) So yeah, I thought about physio, psych all of those kinds of things. Very allied health, health science based. Yes. I knew that I didn't want to go into medicine or nursing. I was like, that's not quite my cup of tea. I think I wanted something a little bit more or a little bit less intense, I guess. I think there's quite a perception that um, nursing and and medicine is quite like full on, which I'm sure that it is. But I, I wanted to be, I think, more removed from the really acute setting and a little bit more general. But my... I guess my upbringing has been very food-focused 
through my whole life and I'm someone who grew up surrounded by food from different cultures and things like that. Um, and I think that kind of played a role in why dietetics was the one that I ended up choosing. Um, and also I was an athlete through through school and through uni and I thought it was really interesting the way that what I ate, what I ate around training or after training affected how I performed and how I felt and how I recovered. Um, so that kind of spurred me on more. And then I was like, maybe I could like do this for a job. Yeah. <laughs> and abso- now I do. <laughs> Absolutely. So did you go to any open days, careers nights, talk to the careers counsellor at school to further cement where you wanted to study it? Yeah, absolutely. So we had a couple of like, like compulsory careers counselling sessions in school. Um, and from that, I very much got the both the allied health kind of push and also a human resources, business management oh. kind of push. Um, so I think it was kind of tapping into my more people-focused social side of things. And then I went to open days at uni. So I went to open days at Monash, Deakin and La Trobe, which when I was graduating were the only universities that could offer dietetics. So the uni needs to be accredited in order for students to, I guess, have the qualification at the end. And those three unis were the only unis at the time that were. Um, So I went to those open days and, you know, got a feel for the unis and looked at their other health sciences courses as well. But by that time, I already kind of had my heart set on dietetics. So absolutely. That's what I did. And so you mentioned chemistry before being a prerequisite. Thank God that you did pick it up in year 12 as hard as it was. Um, it's good that you had it so you could do dietetics. Mm. But were there any other prerequisites? Uh, from memory, it was one of the Englishes, one of the maths. Oh, yes. Doesn't matter which one. No. Cool. So I did literature and general maths. Oh. So. Awesome. You know, just because. But I and I think there might have been like a strongly recommended that you have done some of biology or health and human development. Yep. Um, and I'd done unit one, two biology in year 10 as well. So I was like, oh, I've got a bit of that. And I'd done health. So I, I was already pretty well equipped. Awesome. And your first preference was Monash? Yes. And then what was the second one? From memory, I think I had um, Bachelor of Nutrition Science at Monash, which yep. is what I got, and then Health Science at Monash, and then Bachelor of Nutrition at Deakin, I think, okay. were my, like my top three. Nutrition at Monash is from the Clayton campus, which I don't know if you've been, but it's beautiful. It's a long way away, but it's beautiful. It's got like its own community. It's it got does. everything it there. Really the restaurants, does. the shops, the... Look, it is very far from the city, yes. but beautiful everything's there yeah yeah so um and I got a little bit sucked into I think Monash having like a top tier university reputation which a lot of people do it does it does my brother was going to Melbourne so I was like oh I want to be a good good child as well (laughs) (laughs) not that my parents would have cared but um yeah Monash was my top preference for nutrition and then health science and then it kind of went nutrition, health science, nutrition, health science at the other two unis. And from there, I think it was just science. I, you know, people always said there's always a pathway, like, you know, and so we, I t- talked a lot with my careers counsellor and my parents about, you know, what's the backup plan? If you don't get your first preference, what's the options like? And so the pathway from health science into nutrition and dietetics is relatively straightforward. And then from regular science to health science, to nutrition dietetics like we talked a lot through that so I had that as my backup plan perfect in all of my preferences very smart as well so if you didn't get your first one you could have gotten in through health science and then transferred done it as a postgrad so many options yeah all through um year 12 and when we we're putting our preferences in and stuff um people were always like once you get to uni you can always change your course it's really easy And I think when I was in year 12, I was like, yeah, whatever, of course it is. I'm sure you're just saying that for the people that maybe don't get their first preference so they don't feel bad. And then I got to uni and I was like, oh, oh, you actually can just change your course and and change your pathway. And it might take you a little bit longer or it might not be the direction that you planned, but it actually is really straightforward and really simple. And you get a lot of support from unis if that's what you want to do. If you go to them and you're like, hey, I actually want to do this whole other thing they'll figure out a way to make it happen. Absolutely. Look, it might be a bit scary if you want to say, hey, I'm doing health science now, but then I want to do aerospace engineering. Look, it might be a really hard jump, but you could definitely change. There's an option. 
Mm, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And so can you just tell our audience, so they're all students, they perhaps may not know what a dietitian is. So you went into uni with the end goal to be an accredited dietitian. Yeah. What is that? Yeah, so um, I went into uni and I did a Bachelor of Nutrition Science. So from that, you become qualified as a nutritionist, yep. um, which is someone who is, I guess, experienced and educated in a way to support people to live healthier lives through through food and through adjusting their diet and lifestyle choices to support their health. Going on to study dietetics and to become a dietitian is taking that one step further. So um, accredited practicing dietitians are, I guess you could consider the experts in the food and nutrition space. And you have a, a, a few more job opportunities um, and it's a regulated term, whereas nutritionist isn't. Um, so as a dietitian, you can be covered by Medicare and private health insurance and these kinds of things as well. But dietitians work in a whole, whole, whole different range of places that you maybe wouldn't expect. So most commonly in a hospital. So they'll work with um, people who might have cancer or the aged care population, um, gastrointestinal issues, or all kinds of things through hospitals, providing acute care. Outside of hospitals, you could work clinically in private practice, which is what I do. So I work with people who might be managing a certain medical condition that is less acute. So they're not in hospital generally, um, but they maybe have something that they need assistance managing, like diabetes, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, irritable bowel syndrome, gut issues, things like that. Um, or people who do just want to be a little bit healthier or, or um, improve their relationship with food. Dietitians can also work in food industry. So some of the big food companies like Sanitarium and Kraft and Bega and all of these big companies have dietitians involved in product development, in food regulation, in all kinds of different areas within that scope, in health promotion and things like that. And then dietitians can also work in health promotion in a broader sense. So within government or local government or in, um, for example, in charities like Cancer Council have dietitians who support um, the development of resources and tools and things for health promotion as well. So literally so many opportunities in so many different areas, which that, is fantastic. That is incredible. I Honestly, I did not expect that. I don't know what dietitians do, but now that has really enlightened me. And that is incredible. So does that mean that you can only be a dietitian with a postgrad? Yes. Like through a master's? Yeah. Only a nutritionist with the undergrad? No. So you oh. can become a nutritionist through some alternative pathways. Yep. Not university-based. Yep. Um, and depending on the pathway, may not hold the same regard. Yep which is one of the, I guess, difficulties with practising as, as a nutritionist because you may not, you may be working alongside or I don't want to use the word against, but no, of course. in the same industry as people that might not have the same Qualification. qualifications. Yeah. Um, and a lot of what we do through uni, even in my undergrad, was focusing on evidence-based practice and making sure that what we do is safe and adhering to a really specific code of ethics and things like that because at the end of the day it is a medical degree or a health science degree but not all nutrition courses are necessarily as um, like in depth as in depth and as focused um, or even as regulated as, as regulated or as um, they don't go into the same requirements for practice in terms of protecting clients and patients safety so it's a frustration. It's good to know. Yes, it is. Especially when you are in year 12 and you're picking pathways or what you want to do. Um, it's good to know and have all this information so that you can make your decision. Yeah. I mean, coming from where I am now and with the knowledge that I have now, I would always say to someone who is looking to go into a nutrition space or any sort of um, allied health space to really consider what the different options and pathways are and what they look like and how that might impact your practice and also impact your clients. So I know that there are some, for example, personal trainers can receive nutrition accreditations through various pathways that might not necessarily 
provide the same scope of practice or something like that. So I think it's an important thing to be aware of and to look into if you're considering it as an option. And I'm sure that's true for physiotherapy or my therapy or anything else in the allied health space as well. Absolutely. So now tell me what your first day or your first experience um, was like being at university. How did you go the transition from being in high school to now an independent adult at Monash? We were pretty lucky. We got um, a lot of onboarding, a lot of support with our cohort. Because I was doing a Bachelor of Nutrition Science, it was quite a specialised degree. So I think people quite often, especially in some of the bigger unis and some of the bigger courses, have classes with hundreds and hundreds of students in them and, uh, you know, different lecturers and you pick pick from all different options of classes and it's chaotic. Absolutely. <laughs> I can relate to that, yes. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, we were quite lucky in that because we had such a specialised course from day one. So all of my course codes were NUT. I was in a Bachelor of Nutrition Science like course progression. Ah. And so I started with a cohort of 181 yep. and was basically with that group of people for every class through till, for some cases, till the end of my master's. That is so good yeah. um, because you come from school where you're really tight knit in year 12. It happens. Everyone's like kind of a family. You're working together. And typically students will jump into a course that's like 300, 500 or 1,000. But to go to 180, that's really, really beneficial. Yeah. So we had small class sizes. Our lecturers knew us really well so they could provide really good support for us. Um, we made quite quick friendships because you saw the same people like – I think we'll go into it further in a minute, but our contact hours were crazy. I was there like eight till four and nine till five, like four or five days a week. Is this in the first year? Yeah. So pretty much all the way through, we had pretty crazy contact hours um, and like two hour lecture blocks. And But it was very much consistent with what we were used to coming of from course, school. Because you'd go from school being like whatever, nine till 3.30 and then going to uni, it was just much the same. A lot of degrees that I do talk to, they're like, oh, my contact hours are like four or five hours a week. I just do it online. But unlike your course, it was, would you say, very, well, it was a lot of content. But was the content challenging? Was it difficult in the first year? Uh, yes and no. So through first and second year, we had some units that were like very science heavy, very, you know, while it was a specialised course, progression plan and and subjects for nutrition students we still did a lot of physiology and anatomy and biochemistry and those kinds of things we just had a kind of nutrition focus on it which was good yeah but still very difficult and dense topics but that being said we also had a lot of you know foundations of professional practice and ethics and motivational interviewing and a lot of the more we used to say fluffy stuff but yep. the stuff that you don't necessarily learn in a book and that's more collaborative and, and tutorials focused around being able to build the skills that support you to build rapport with clients and, you know, those kinds of conversations. So they were good at balancing out the two as well. That's really important because some people can finish a degree and then they go into the workforce and they're like, oh, I don't know how to talk to clients or I don't know how to structure an email. I know it sounds so silly, but the fact that they incorporated that as well as the content-heavy subjects that's really great. You've almost sold me on this course. Yeah. <laughs> I should do it. You should. It's good. So in a week, take me through a week in the life. How many days at, were you there? At uni? Yeah, first year. Four to five most Jesus. weeks. Yeah. Wow. Um, and those days would range from, like I mentioned, sometimes eight till four, nine till five. Some days it would be a two-hour lecture block and then a big break and then a two-hour lecture block. Um, which is pretty, you know, typical run-of-the-mill. Of course. It is the way that it is at uni. We would have, not so much in first year, but second year we would have, like, practicals that we would do. So we would do biochem pracs and things like that. Later in the degree we would have kitchen practicals, so we did a lot of um, cooking, which was good, and we learned about, you know, different properties of food. So if you adjust the fat content in a recipe, how does that affect the end of it? Or if we looked at texture-modified foods and... and being able to address those kinds of things for people that might have um, difficulties chewing or swallowing or those kinds of things. That is so cool. Yeah. Fantastic. I'm, I'm mind blown. That is incredible. <laughs> and Cooking in, classes, practical classes, a bit of lectures. like bit of lectures, cool. yeah, standard. <laughs> and in third year we had um, – we were lucky enough that Monash have something called the BASE facility, which is an acronym for Be Active, Sleep, Eat. 
um, but they've got an industrial kitchen, a sports lab and a sleep lab in there. So we would go in and um, do sports practicals and look at hydration and and different, um, you know, breath testing for malabsorption and things like that in a really um, real-time sense, which was awesome, rather than just, you know, watching a YouTube video on it during a lecture or something like that. So it was... I think they tried... Monash tried really hard to make it hands-on and um, to really involve us in the process, which made it so much easier to learn Absolutely. the concepts behind it. Putting the theory into real-life practice as opposed to just watching the video and um, passively consuming it. Absolutely. So now tell me, what subjects at school related to things that you've studied in your degree... I'm assuming chemistry. Not as much as I would have hoped, given that I picked it up in year 12. <laughs> and given that it was a prereq, you thought, oh, I'm, yep. I'm ready to nail chemistry. Yeah. So we oh. did a little bit of biochem. Mm-hmm. Honestly, biology would have been more useful, I think. Oh, um, so I'm glad that I did the one too, but I wish I had have stuck it out a little bit more. Yep. Health and human development was definitely really helpful. Um, maths and English, because they were a prerequisite as well, but also because I think they are just really good foundational skills to have. I thought going into nutrition and dietetics that there wouldn't be much maths, um, and that's, I was wrong. That's what I was going <laughs> to ask. Tell me about the maths like ability, because that stresses some kids out. They're thinking, I'm not strong at maths. I don't really like it, but I really want to do this course, and I'm scared of the biomechanics and all the maths behind it. Yeah. Was there support at uni? Um, there was support. So we there were heaps of options for you know, tutoring pathways and things like that through the uni. And um, a lot of the libraries had, like, student study helpers and things like that. But also because we were a small cohort, we all knew each other, we knew our lecturers, those kinds of things. You didn't feel weird about going up to your lecturer and being like, hey, would you mind just explaining that again quickly to me or can we catch up or those kinds of things? Because you might have them for two hours in the morning and then, like, there would be days we would walk as a co like as a cohort across campus to our next lecture hall with the same lecturer. That's so funny. Because of the way that our room allocations <laughs> worked out. And so the lecturer would be like, okay, now I'll see you guys in ten minutes in this room. Go grab a coffee, whatever. I'll I'll see you soon. Um, but you could walk with the lecturer and be like, hey, like I have a question about this or run me through this or whatever it might be, which is really fantastic. Yeah, heavier on maths than I thought it would be, but not really complex. Okay. Maths. So we do a lot of calculating requirements, um, like energy requirements or nutritional requirements, which is addition and multiplication. Like oh, we could not, get through. You of could course. you could get through. You could get through. Um, with the exception of one subject in third year, which was statistics. Which what, most where did that relate? Um, so people who could then go on, on to research. Ah. And so most science based degrees I would imagine or most degrees, I'd imagine, to an extent, would have some element of statistics. Absolutely, some kind of research. Exactly. So, And because we talk a lot about being evidence-based, we need to understand what goes into the evidence that we're interpreting for our clients. So then we had to understand the statistics that underlie the evidence. And to understand the statistics, we had to do a subject on it. And it was rough, but we got through. So, you know. There you go. And again, the lecturers are really supportive. And they, they come up and they're like, we know this is hard. Like, let us help you through it. Like, your lecturers want you to pass the subject. They're not there to, like, ruin your life or make things hard. Genuinely, like, they have all been there. They literally just wanted to help us through, which is really great. Absolutely. Oh, that is so good to know, especially the fact that not only was it a tight-knit community, the mm. lecturers, the teachers, there is support there. So yeah. don't let that put you off, like, if this is your dream course. Mm, no, absolutely. But tell me about the types of assessment in the undergrad degree. What kind of assignments or essays or activities were you doing? We got a massive variety. So early in the undergrad, we had a combination of essays. We did a lot of group work. We did a fair bit of public speaking so we did a lot of like group presentations things like that we had exams every semester pretty much all the way through and quite heavily weighted exams as well like 50 60 70 percent weighted exams um on content on content so like on biomechanics or an exam on anatomy uh both yep both and also like theoretical exams so putting your knowledge into practice this is the scenario or explain how X relates to Y or those kinds of things. And we also, you know, we would have quizzes and things like that quite early on, um, on, like online 
just quizzes, quizzes like tutorial quizzes, things like that. Um, and then later, later on, you would have more practical, like I guess patient-based or work-based assessments. So we had OSCEs, um, which is pretty consistent with other medical and allied health fields. So it's in like a simulated patient scenario. Well, that's what we called them. At Objective struct. Objective structured clinical exam. Yep, there you go. Oh, and it's like nursing midwifery also do it. And yep. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and medicine, yeah. physio would, those kinds of things. So it would basically be like people would come in and be like actors or whatever. Yeah, Other my, students. My sister does this in physio. She's like, yep. every Friday these people come in and they're actors. And I was like, isn't that funny? She goes, no, we have to. We have to practice. You have to practice, yeah. exactly. And so they will pretend to be injured or... You know, we, for example, we practice taking diet history. So that's a key element of our practice is like being able to get a, a good understanding of what someone has been eating because that's our job. Um, and so, you know, they would have memorized a certain script for diet history and we would be assessed on how accurately we could get that information from them. Um, and the, the lecturers and examiners would know what we would should be looking for. So, for example, unless you ask them about whether they drank soft drink, they might not tell you that they drank six cans of Diet Coke in a day. And so that was like a key part of the assessment was like, are you asking those questions? So it's really gauging our clinical knowledge and our ability to interact with with clients. And what you're going to do on a daily basis in your career anyway. Exactly, exactly. And so what assessments did you do in the master's? Same type of thing? Similar stuff. So um, again, more patient focused, so more OSCE style stuff, still exam heavy still presentation heavy. We had a lot of group education. So for example, if you, again, very practical, if you were to educate a group of people on, I don't know, how to eat in a way that's healthy, but also affordable. So like, yeah. let's look at affordable food and you would need to like provide an education session on that to the group. And they'd look at how you presented and how you used, um, you know, resources. Did you take in examples of food packets? Did you use a whiteboard? Did you engage the crowd or the audience or those kinds of things that I imagine, would, I guess, literally teaching. Exactly. <laughs> literally that is so teaching. cool. Yeah. And, so. like, you could do that as a career anyway. You know, yeah. there's, like, workshop of dietitians that do workshops. Yeah. Work, what do you, like, they go into corporate and do those presentations as well. Yeah, so I do, um, in my role now, I do um, nutrition education sessions for, like, sporting clubs sometimes and um, even in terms of, like, internal education, so professional development at one of my clinics. Like, we ran one the other week looking at, and it was literally, like, this is what dietitians do because a lot of our physios didn't even have a good understanding. And I was like, this is like being back at uni and doing an assessment on... But you've done it, so you know what it's exactly. like. Exactly. It's really – you feel really stupid doing it at uni at the time. You're like, oh, this feels really silly teaching my, like – My class that already my knows. My classmates about this stuff that, you know, and it's easy to feel really judged about it because they have the same knowledge, and I think that that's something that's easy to forget when you're at uni. I used to feel really stupid being like, am I learning anything? I don't know anything. And then I would go out and talk to people that didn't have the exact same knowledge as me and be like – Oh, I know lots of things. It's okay. Yeah. It's just because I was always surrounded by the same group of people that knew the same stuff. Um, and so it's, I think it's easy to forget that you do actually learn a lot in a really short period of time and that that is really valuable and all of those skills that seem really silly and insignificant then end up being the ones that you need the most. Like there's a reason they teach them to you through uni because you need them. Absolutely. <laughs> Definitely. Now tell me... Were there any placement requirements in the undergrad degree? I did a lot of placement. And because I did all of my degree back to back, I couldn't tell you for sure. I Oh, yes, gotcha. Yep. I think there was. So I think we did public health placement maybe at the end of the undergrad or the start of the master's. Wait, there was no clinical placement, no hospital placement, nothing like that. In fact, I don't. I want to actually. On now that I think about it, I want to say there was no placement. Okay. In the undergrad. That's cool. We'll talk about it in the masters anyway. Yes, I don't. Okay, no placement in the undergrad okay. that I can think of right now. But can you source other like internships or part-time work in the field while you're doing your undergrad to help you? Absolutely, and I would encourage it as well. Um, I'm sure we'll go into it, but in terms of job opportunities after university those kind of experiences are going to be invaluable really yeah I think it's helpful as well to for you to kind of get a feel for what it's going to be like I think some people 
had those kind of experiences in the undergrad and then were like, maybe this isn't actually the path for me. And I think we're happy that they'd figured that out a little bit earlier than at the end of their degree. Or in the reverse as well. Some people who might not have been sure or, you know, just wanted to get some of that experience would go and do some work experience or some shadowing or some volunteering and then go, yes, I'm sure this is what I love or actually I'm more interested in this other area of nutrition that I hadn't considered before and now that I've been exposed to it, I might push my path more in that direction. So definitely I think something worth looking into in the undergrad at some stage. Yeah, totally. And so when you finished the undergrad and then you went straight in to do the Masters of Dietetics, how did these differ? Do you think it was more an extension and more in-depth of what you were currently learning? Yes and no. So definitely an extension. So everything we learned in the Masters was building on everything we'd learned in the undergrad. Um, There was that six months of overlap. So at that midpoint, we had some new students come into the cohort who maybe were coming from other degrees or other universities or had maybe been out working and wanted to upskill or get further education. So things got shaken up a little bit and some people did choose to keep the nutrition degree as it was and there's still lots of job opportunities for nutritionists who have been university educated in that pathway. Kind of felt the same but then there was placement and then there was much more of a focus on the clinical side of things and the patient and those kinds of things because that's what that extra degree that's kind of the purpose of it to get that further training and and um, knowledge absolutely patient care so now tell me you're doing your masters tell me all about the placement experience so we did four or five rounds of placement in different areas so we had a couple of clinical ones we did one in food service so Um, For me, that was in kitchen at a hospital, Um, looking at our project was an assessment of food waste in a hospital and looking at ways to reduce food waste, basically. That's pretty cool. Um, And we also did a public health placement. So I worked with an organisation called the Community Grocer, who do um, subsidised food markets for low-income communities. So they're quite often... Um, there's one actually in Carlton at the Commission Flats down from Melbourne Uni. One day a week, one morning a week, and they set up um, direct from farmer or d- direct from supplier markets. The food and produce is really cheap. They kind of focus on making them a, a bit of a community space. So some of them, some of the markets have local community members that come and cook or make tea or we do basket weaving classes and things like that. So we went and did an, an impact evaluation and looked at how those community markets played a role in improving the um, nutritional health and well-being and the, and the social health and well-being of of those communities which was really cool and it the three different I guess types of placement experience gave us good insight into different career options so a majority of our placement was clinical but we still get to experience some of the other pathways that's so cool and benefit like as well so does the university organise the placement? Yes. So in our case, they did. Um, you could put in like your preferences. So I, um, you know, with my community placement, I was lucky enough to be quite local. And then my hospital placements, you do three. So you do a two week and then you do an eight week. And then there's a, I think, three week at some other point. So you can put a preference in for a certain network or for a certain hospital. Um, but for example, I was at the Alfred Caulfield campus. I was at Monash Health Moorabbin, Monash Health Dandenong. So all over the shop. All over the shop. So look, it's not bad, but it's great experience. And very different experiences at each one as well, especially um, with regard to our areas. For example, Monash Moorabbin is um, affiliated with Peter Mac, so they've got an oncology centre there. So a lot of the clients that I, or a lot of the patients that I saw in that placement were people in the oncology stream, whereas Caulfield is aged care and rehab mainly. So it was a lot of the older population and managing them. So different experiences and all very valuable and very different. (laughs) Yeah, but but you need that experience so that you can decide where you want to take the career. Exactly, you do. Now, was the contact hours much the same as the undergrad? Were you there just as much every day type of thing? Yep. 
Yep. Oh very goodness. much so. So and our placement blocks were full time for the most part or four days a week with one day of classes. So that's five days of the week with uni or placement. Mm. So talk me through managing work life or like surviving, having an income part time. Obviously, you'd have to have a job that your manager appreciates you taking time off type of thing. Yeah. It's hard. It is hard. It is hard. So I think later in the undergrad and early in the master's, our contact hours were a little bit more flexible. Um, so you might have an afternoon off here or there or a morning off or a morning where you started at 11. Yep. So there's a bit more flexibility in that regard. And I very much made the most of it. <laughs> so through through the undergrad, I worked in retail. So I was doing a lot of weekend work. Oh, late night trade as well. Late night trade. So I'd do Thursday, Friday nights. Um, I would do mornings if I got a morning off. If I got an afternoon off, I would do late afternoon to evening. So I was working probably three days a week, maybe, or three different days with different half shifts, shifts or whatever. And then in my master's, I was working at a gym. Oh, so I was perfect. doing reception work um, and I was finishing... I was doing, starting at 7am and going to lunchtime or starting in the afternoon and finishing at 8pm and those kinds of things. So I think it was just important to me to find something that could be, I guess, outside of uni hours and flexible in that regard. So I think a lot of students in my cohort were doing like waitressing or waitering. Fitness centres were really popular. Reception was really popular, especially at allied health medical clinics because it's kind of a pathway in to a job absolutely but I worked through and I also continued with my sport which I thought was really tell important. me about this so is it a, do you do cheerleading I do do cheerleading that is incredible yes. um how did you balance working studying placement here and there and then your sport obviously very busy I can relate because I'm the same but yeah. some students may think oh my goodness how does she balance so I started cheerleading when I was 14. Yep. So by the time I got to uni, I'd had a lot of practice at balancing it with class and schoolwork and life. That being said, I don't think that you need to have done it for 10 years to be good at doing it in uni. I was lucky enough to be on a team and am still lucky enough to be on a team that trains quite late at night. So we train 8 till 10 p.m. twice okay. a week. Yeah. So it's not interfering too much with my uni hours. I would look at what I could do to give myself as much time as possible to study. So I train in Box Hill. I went to uni in Clayton. I lived in Fitzroy. So for me, it wouldn't make sense for me to drive home from uni past my gym where I train and then back to the gym for training. It would be the kind of thing where I'd say, okay, well, I've got maybe a five-hour break where I could drive home and back or... I'll take some dinner, I'll study at uni for a few hours, I'll use that time a little bit more effectively. You have to be really mindful about how you're prioritising your assignments and and being aware of what's going on. I live my life by my iCal. Same. If it's not in my calendar, I forget that it exists. Yep. Um, but it is a really helpful tool to even just planning your time out day to day or week to week. Yeah. That's probably the biggest thing. Absolutely. Now, take me through the whole aspect of making the use of the time while you're at university to make yourself more employable. So you touched on some of those jobs, like people were being receptionists, they were working in gyms. What extracurricular or volunteering or intern experience can students put themselves out there to make them stand out? There's heaps, I think. I think anything that gives you skills remotely related to your area is valuable. So even for someone wanting to go into nutrition, I think working in a or volunteering in a role that gives you opportunities to practice different styles of communication or communicating with different demographic groups, whether that be age, whether it be socioeconomic status, whether it be cultural, these kind of opportunities, you know, especially in a, in a health science area or an allied health area, employers, I believe, look on quite favourably because it's something that you really do need to be good at in this area of work. The other thing I think is to just reach out. Um, I think a lot of people are actually quite willing to help students um, or direct students on to someone who might be able to help them. And it seems very daunting, but sometimes even just asking the question or 
offering your services or, hey, is there anything I can do? I'm really interested in this area. This is something I'm really passionate about and being genuine about that as well because I think people can tell when you're not. Um, But putting yourself out there. I was lucky enough to have a couple of opportunities come up from conversations with my lecturers. So a lot of lecturers in dietetics nutrition also do a lot of research in dietetics and nutrition, especially at Monash, um, in the sports nutrition field. Um, And so in talking to them, I got some experience assisting one of them on their PhD. That's really cool. I got to go to Alice Springs and look at a study doing um, fueling for ultramarathon runners. Wow. Like, you know, and those kinds of things. And it's, again, literally just having the conversation and being like, this is an area I'm really interested in. And I think it started as a what can I do to make myself more employable kind of conversation and ended up with those lecturers being like, well, actually... Come help me. Come help me. And that's what I did. And that's something that I still draw on now four years, five years later. Wow. Yeah. So good to know. Anyone listening, don't be afraid to put yourself out there and just ask. Ask the question, genuinely. And even, um, especially with dietitians, I find, but again, I'm sure other allied health is the same, like reaching out to someone and having that conversation. How did you get to where you are? Or what advice do you have? Do you mind if I shadow you for a day? Or even just ask you a couple of questions and those kinds of things. Like, it seems really scary. And then you're in, when you're in that position and you have people asking you these kind of things, you're like, of course I'll help. Like, why would I not? I would have loved that kind of support when I was in uni. And I was lucky enough to get it. And people do want to help you get to where you want to be. Absolutely. Hey, and the worst thing that they would say is no. And that's not even a bad thing. No, exactly. And in some cases, if it's a no, it's not a no. That was a silly question. It's, look, I don't have capacity for that, but can I suggest you speak to this person or can I suggest you try this avenue instead? And, you know, like you said, sometimes it is just taking it and being like, oh, that's unfortunate. Let me try someone else. Someone out there will be willing to help you, I promise. Absolutely. So now near the end of the master's degree, what are the next steps to work um, in the field or become accredited? Do you have to fill out any extra paperwork, register with some organisation? So for dietitians, accreditation is optional. Really? Yeah. So you can do the whole master's course Mm -hmm. and not get accredited? Yeah, so you don't actually have to be accredited, I guess, to an extent to practice. However, most organisations would ask you to be or to at least be eligible. Why wouldn't someone get accredited? Because it costs a lot of money. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. So, um, So you need to have completed your course at a... I guess, accredited university, like I mentioned. So I think Swinburne is now accredited as well or is in the process of, and that gets reviewed every few months. So that's for you to be eligible for accreditation. And most workplaces will ask that you are accredited or are eligible for. for. That accreditation process is pretty straightforward. You just kind of apply. Um, The organisation's called Dietitians Australia. And they, from memory, they just ask you what your education is, where you went to uni, Um, And you pay them and then they accredit you. But that means that you can then, like I mentioned, your clients can claim on Medicare. You um, can be, you can use private health insurance. Most hospitals will ask that you're accredited or eligible to be accredited um, in order to work within the hospital. Um, And it comes with some benefits to an extent, you know, support from other dietitians access to some journals and professional information, things like that. As part of that process, you go through a 12-month period of mentoring as well. So That's quite good. There's a requirement for you to find yourself a mentor and for 12 months, I think you have 18 or 24 months to do it, but for 12 separate months total within a set period, you have to do at least one hour of mentoring. So, for example, I Zoom call with my mentor once a month and we catch up and it's an opportunity for me to I quite often will message him and be like hey I've got this really hard client at the moment I'm really struggling I'm not sure what to do with them or you know can we troubleshoot this case that I had the other day Um, we talk about research that we've heard of recently or that's up and coming in certain areas before I was working across the clinics that I work at, we were talking about how to be more employable and I actually took over. So our mentoring relationship started because he was 
finishing at a clinic and I took his role. And then he was saying as part of me leaving, I'm willing to mentor the new grad who gets my job kind of situation, which was really great. And he's fantastic as well. Um, And I'll sometimes call him and be like, like last week I called and was like, I'm having a really rough week. I've had patients cancel which happens, you know, I'm feeling really average about it all. And it's someone who you can kind of like, they're in your corner and they know what you're going through. And it's someone that's not your parents or your family. Cause like, he's a dietitian, he gets it. Like, you know, it's a bit different. Absolutely. Wow. I had no idea. That is pretty cool. And so do you think that there are a lot of jobs out there once you finish, or do you think it's quite competitive? Because I heard that it's really tough. Mm, Yes. So all the way through uni, they were like, there's no jobs for dietitians when you graduate. Oh, God, you don't want to hear that. No, like, you really don't, especially oh not goodness. from, like, day one first year. Not literally from day one, but quite early in first year. You know, they were like... I guess they did that to tell you, okay, if you're not cut out for it, don't, don't waste your time. Don't, don't not in it. a bad way, but more so, like, maybe do something you're more passionate about. Yeah, but we, it's also about setting yourself apart and I mean that in a couple of different ways so setting yourself apart in terms of being really good at what you do and being well educated and that's where like you know everyone wants to be top of their class and all of those kinds of things but at the same time and I think especially in the area of dietetics because it is quite new I guess relative to some other professions there's lots of opportunity to do something completely different or start something completely different and we have people saying to us all the time like you know, you can start something and set yourself apart by making something that doesn't exist yet or working in a new, completely new area. But the reason they say to us that there's no jobs or the reason they said that all the way through uni is because the number of grad roles in hospitals for dietitians is very small. I'm talking like maybe five or six in Melbourne. Yeah. So and when there's you, like three or four unis that are pumping out Three or grads. four unis. So when I graduated my master's, I think our cohort was 73. Yep. So we dropped down a little bit from um, when I started in my undergrad. 73 is still more than six. <laughs> That's not to say that everyone who graduated wanted to work in hospitals. So like yep. myself, for example, I graduated and I was like, I don't think I want to work in hospital straight away. I think I'd like to do private practice. Um, work in a slightly different scope but there yeah not many grad roles and that's because when you think about a hospital you've got lots and lots of nurses lots and lots of doctors and in even in quite a large hospital you might have a team of six to eight dietitians they might not all be full-time it is just very competitive but again that being said I I work in private practice I work across three different clinics I you know, I and I still do a combination of clinical work and reception work. I re- work reception as well at one of my clinics. Like I don't work full time in my industry and I graduated 18 months ago. But I think it's being, I guess, open minded about what your opportunities are and being realistic in recognising that you might not get a full time role straight away. And sometimes that's OK. Some people started somewhere in a limited capacity and then we're like oh I kind of want to do something different and you have that flexibility to kind of figure out where your area is within dietetics and then even alongside that since graduating I've done additional study and I'm about to start another course um this is my next question (laughs) I'm just feeding it's in my brain I love it okay so the next study the more studies what are you doing and is it common for people after their master's to continue studying yes very common. Part of our accreditation is um, CPD, so Continued Professional Development. Yep. We have to do, I think, 30 hours a year or something and just track it, and it's pretty easy to track hours. So, for example, accessing free or paid courses in whatever area of dietetics you'd like or you specialise in counts and you just record it. Uh, last year I did the Monash University low FODMAP diet for management of IBS course. Really great to do because that is so up and, not up and coming, I want to say, but it is very more common now. Being, yes, increasingly recognised. Fun fact, April is IBS Awareness Month. So (gasps) happy IBS Awareness. Happy IBS Awareness Month. So, and that was an area that I was seeing a lot of clients in. And so while I'd had, I guess, a base level of training in that during uni, I was like, I'd really like to have a better understanding, be able to better support my clients. This is an area that I'm really interested in, really passionate about. So I did that and it was over six months, but it was a self-paced course. So you could do it in a month if you really wanted to. And online, 
easy. Yep. So um, I just got through that. You know, I would go to work in the morning. I'd have the afternoon off and be like, I'll just do an hour or two of work and upskill in that area. Would there um, be like mini assignments you'd have to do as part of the quizzes? Course? Quizzes yep. and then an exam at the end. Um, and I'm about to start the sports dietitians course. So I'll be at the end of that. Again, that's 13 weeks online. It used to be in person and then COVID and now it's online. Um, so at the end of that, I'll be able to call myself an accredited sports dietitian, which is kind of just an extra level to work Why not? With. And you're passionate in sport as well. Exactly, exactly. So my ideal is working in a combination of what I do now, which is private practice, IBS, chronic disease, um, and working with an athletic population and teams and sporting performance and that kind of thing, which is basically the other end of the spectrum in terms of clients. But I really like the combination. Love it. So that's why I chose to do that as well. Yeah. Um, and that all counts for my professional development, my accreditation and, and things like that. And having a flexible work schedule and not working full time gives me more opportunity to do that. So it's kind of like a win-win in that it's really refreshing because typically when you do finish your degree you jump into a nine to five but for example you can balance multiple clinics a bit of study on the side and then move throughout every year you could do something new and different from what you built on yeah exactly and you you need to actually to keep your accreditation but yeah I definitely I definitely don't work nine to five at all um it's not a bad thing no but it's not, but it, it has its moments of frustration. So because I work when other people aren't working, so they can come in see me in the clinic. Um, for example, a regular day for me might be like 8 till 12 or 8 till 2 yep. at one clinic. And then I have a couple of hours off and then I might do 3 till 7 at a different clinic. So sometimes it makes for very late days yep. and very long days. Um, but it does give you a lot of flexibility to do different stuff with your days and with your time as well. Absolutely. How about more study at university level, say like a PhD? Is that anything that you're interested in? I'm not saying no. I'm not going to say never. <laughs> it's a lot of study. I know. Yeah, it's definitely not anywhere close for me right now. Yep. But yeah, I don't know. We'll see. Mm. We'll see. Maybe. <laughs> I'll, I'll have to keep posted. You have yeah, to keep us posted. I'll let you know. <laughs> and um, what about your qualification as a dietitian? Does it transfer overseas? Like, let's pretend COVID doesn't exist and you <laughs> want to do a stint in um, the UK or the US. Can, are you just solely registered in Australia or can you jump over there and work? So you're registered in Australia. Um, the UK happens to be the place that our registration is most transferable to as far as I'm aware so there were some options they did talk to us through our degree about that being an option and you could do like an exchange or you could head over following um, graduation and do some work over there I guess translation to other countries I don't think is as smooth but my understanding is that you've kind of got the training and you just need to do additional accreditation or, or go through the requirements to be accredited in that country. So for example, for people coming from other countries to be accredited in Australia, there's an exam that's held by Dietitians Australia, so our governing body, that they need to sit and then go through a process to be accredited. So the degree alone isn't enough. Yeah. But um but when you think about it, like a lot of my knowledge is based on um, Australian food and and our culture and, and our culture yeah. and things like that, I which that. the nutritional requirements and the nutritional guidelines in Australia might be very different to the guidelines in, in America. Country. In like America, off the top exactly, of my head, yeah. you can even see like portion sizes and this and yeah, lots and differences. they might also use like, for example, in Australia we use RDI quite an often, which is your recommended daily intake, but I think. I think the US use like a daily average, which is quite different. So you have the the knowledge basis, but I think you'd, you'd need to look at upskilling in that specific country to not even necessarily to just be like eligible to practice, but to, I guess, be able to practice effectively as yep. well. But Absolutely. it's definitely an option. That's good to know. Yeah. And I know you just mentioned a little bit about a day in your life, and I guess it can change throughout the week. Take me through what you would do in a typical day or week, if you like. At work or just in general? Oh, work, life, anything. <laughs> work, life, anything. Wow. Um, so I've mentioned a couple of times, but I work three jobs. Yep. Um, so two of those are, well, they're all at clinics, but two of them started clinically and one started as a reception job that has now 
morphed into something more clinical as well. So I'll do consulting there as well. Lovely. Most of my days start at one clinic, have a break, and then finish at another clinic. Um, I'm lucky enough to have Monday and Friday afternoons off. So, for example, a Tuesday, I will start at 8 in St Kilda. I'll finish at 2. Um, I'll have a couple of hours off and I'll start at 3 or 4 in Thornbury and finish at 7. Those are the hours that I'm available to be booked by clients. It doesn't necessarily mean that I'm busy for those full hours and I'm lucky enough to work in workplaces that are quite supportive of you know, my, my job isn't only seeing clients. So I do a lot of admin and paperwork and things that are required by Medicare to see oh, clients and things like that. So, for example, today I was at work from 9 until 12.30 and I only saw one client okay. this morning. But also this morning I, you know, I wrote a lot of doctor's letters. I did caught up on some of my patient files. I you know, had a meeting with an exercise physiologist who I work quite closely with, so building that multidisciplinary relationship. You know, so it does vary a lot in that regard. After work, sometimes I'll be, you know, some. unfortunately, sometimes I take my work home and I might send a client email or catch up with a client over the phone just to check in. But it really does change so much day to day based on the number of clients I have that day and which workplace I'm working at because they're all very different and whether I'm doing my reception work or not. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Now, are there any misconceptions or things that we hear about dietitians that you want to clear up? Two big ones. Yes, tell me. <laughs> yes. Um, the first one is if you go and see a dietitian, they're going to write you a meal plan. Oh. Yeah. So a lot of people, a lot of clients I get coming in and being like, oh, can you just write me a meal plan? Tell me what to eat. Mm. And I'm like, well, I can, but I would prefer not to. And I think a lot of dietitians would agree with me. Um, basically because my you get more from your treatment or more from your appointment with a dietitian when you learn the skills, basically. So I say to my clients, my job is to teach you and support you and help you develop the skills that you need to be healthier long term. Ideally, my clients stop seeing me. My goal is to get them to a point where they don't need to come in and see me and they can live their way, their lives in a healthy way without my support. If I have a client come in and I write them a meal plan, that meal plan is appropriate for them in the current stage of life that they're in with the current activity levels and with, you know, with that stage of their life. That meal plan might not be appropriate a month from now, six months from now, a year from now. And in giving them that meal plan, they also aren't necessarily learning any of the skills. So I'll always say it's more sustainable for you to learn the skills than it is for me to just tell you what to do. And people tend to enjoy it a little bit more as well because you still get the social element and, you know, you can still go out with your friends and have a nice dinner on a Friday night, even if it's not on your meal plan, because there is that flexibility and you have the knowledge to support your own health. Absolutely. The other one is that dietitians are the food police. And oh. people come in and they'll be like, oh, it's really bad, but I eat, you know, I eat, I eat McDonald's. And I'll be like, I eat McDonald's sometimes. Like, you know, I, I never want to be in a position where my client feels guilty or ashamed of anything that they're eating. Like, I always say to people, like, I'm here to support you. There are days sometimes where cooking a full meal or eating all of your vegetables or whatever your goal might be, isn't realistic. And I say to people all the time, like, you've got to do what you've got capacity to do in that day, especially with food, because you have to eat. Bottom line, you have to eat something. And so it's like sometimes McDonald's is realistic for you and that's okay. And it's about recognising what you can do to support your health as best as you can through food in a way that doesn't mean that it runs your life. Yeah. So, you know, I might have a conversation with someone that's like, okay, so... If you've only got capacity to get takeaway on Friday night, again, for example, after a really crazy work week, let's talk about what takeaway options you have available to you that are going to be healthier choices or, you know, what can we do to improve the nutritional quality of this meal, even if it's from a takeaway outlet? And then also recognising that, again, sometimes 
McDonald's is the best option for you in that minute. And I'm not sitting here saying eat McDonald's for every meal. I'm yeah. just saying, you know, we're not in a position to shame anyone for what they're eating or or come down and you and be like, you can only eat fruit and vegetables. Like, you know, I'm very much, it's about balance and recognising what you can achieve individually and then putting it into practice. That's fantastic. It's very mm. holistic. Yes. And it's not a quick fix. Hey, here's your meal plan. See you later. Yeah. Follow that. It's Absolutely not a quick fix. Wow. And a lot of people do think that. So it's good to clear that up. Mm. Mm-hmm. And what about some things that they don't teach you at uni now that you're in the profession? Our university course was very much geared towards hospital practice. Yep. So when I graduated, I felt really well equipped to work in a hospital. Um, I remember starting my first day in my private practice job in, in a clinic and being like, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I don't know if I'm qualified enough for this, which of course I was. Um, and it's, you know, it's similar knowledge, but the application slightly different. Yep. So in private practice, some of some of the more, I guess, patient-focused things that you don't necessarily learn as directly become more important. Some of your rapport building, some of your communication, um, motivational interviewing, those kinds of things are a bit more relevant. Whereas in a hospital, it's very much like a short-term relationship. You see them in that acute phase and then they move on. So I think I felt a little bit unprepared in that regard. I had all the clinical knowledge, but I didn't have as good of an understanding about how to apply it in a different setting. But then you learnt on the job as but well. But you learn on the job. And it's the kind of stuff that you can't necessarily teach. It's not in a textbook. In a textbook, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So it's easy to look back and say, oh, I didn't learn X, Y, Z, but sometimes you don't know what else you need until you're out there doing it. And, you know, one of the most valuable things we did learn at uni was how to seek the answers and how to, I guess, figure out what you need to know and how to find that information rather than just being in a position where you were stuck. Yeah. Like, well, now I don't know what to do. So I think we were set up. I say I didn't feel prepared to work in private practice, but they gave me the tools I needed to figure it out. Yeah. I think it was just daunting and I was scared. And but. everyone would feel like that on their first job as a like fresh graduate, of course. Mm. Now, the last question I ask everyone, what's something you wish you knew when you were in year 11 and year 12? That I would need chemistry. <laughs> um, no, so I think the most valuable thing that I learned, especially at university, and I kind of touched on it before, was that there's always a way to get to where you'd like to be in your career. So I think it's easy to look at my pathway and be like, oh, well, you just went straight through uni, you did your undergrad, you did your master's, you've got a job, you work three jobs. You know, Life's good. Like, yeah, life's good. Like I just... I had what looked like quite an easy path and in some regards I did um, and I'm quite lucky for that but you know you really can get to uni and change your path or um, you know alter your path slightly and I think the other thing is that you don't necessarily have to go to uni straight away. I know a lot of people now who weren't sure what they wanted to do and took a year off and figured it out or found something that they loved and decided that that was the path that they wanted to take. And I also know a lot of people who went straight into a degree, got halfway through it and were like, I don't want to do, yeah, <laughs> I don't want to do this. So this common. isn't what I'm passionate about. So I think the biggest thing was, was like, there's a way to get to where you want to be. And if you don't know where that is immediately, that it's fine. Like we've got our whole lives to have a career and figure it out. If you don't, if you're not working in your lifetime industry at 25, no one's going to be like, you're a failure. It's no. just going to be like, you just took a little bit longer to figure it out. Exactly. And a lot of people do take as long as they need. Yeah. And they change so many times as well. Yeah. And I, I also say to people, like, I might work for 10 years and then say, you know what? I don't want to be a dietitian anymore. I want to do something else. Yeah. And everything I've learned up until that point will be valuable in another career path. It's just, just needs to be twisted a little bit. Exactly. <laughs> Moulded to the next thing. Moulded to the next thing. That's a good way of phrasing it. Absolutely. Well, Alice, thank you so much for our chat today. It was so insightful. I personally learned a lot about dietitians. Um, it's been fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Anytime. Now, for anyone wanting to find you, what's your Instagram handle? At uh, Alice Mika Dietitian. Okay. I'll put it in the show notes so you are able to find it. If you do have any questions, I'm sure you'd be happy to. Yeah, absolutely. You can DM me on Instagram. If you're a... Um 
if you're a student dietitian <laughs> and you're looking for someone to ask questions to, me and I can almost guarantee any other dietitian would be willing to help because I remember being a student and being like, oh, all the dietitians are so good and scary and they're already working. I don't want to approach them. But like I said, everyone wants to help you. So absolutely. Don't be afraid. Reach out. Reach out. Absolutely. Cool. Well, thank you. You're welcome. If you like this episode or have any more questions, head over to our Instagram at the.studentspace. Now there is a full stop between the and student. And just remember this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not provide any personal advice. Thank you for all your support, everyone. See you later.